This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a real joy for me to be back here at Jikoji in what's becoming an October tradition. and a particular joy this year because our numbers grow. <laughs> We've got a total of nine of us this time around. And uh, when Mike first broached the subject to me about what he was considering to be the, uh, the topic for this week's Sashin, uh, I grew even more enthused because it's a work that's been near and dear to my heart since I began to practice. It's just one of those things in the chant book that kind of has all these zingers that you don't know what the hell it means, but it sure sounds like something if I stick with this and if I ever start to get it, I'm going to be really pretty profound. (laughs) Hasn't happened yet, but I'm still working at it. In fact, it's so... uh, I'll call it bizarre with, with the imagery. You know, actually, I thought I could have really got off the deep end and had some fun with the talk. I, I considered doing something like Dong Shan's Adventures in Wonderland <laughs> and maybe even pull Mike in as uh, an illustrator. We could have some artwork to accompany it. A baby that's crawling around chanting Baba Wawa. Holding a five-pronged Vajra. <laughs> Crawling past a, a stone man that's, or a wooden man that's singing and a stone, stone woman that's dancing. And you kind of start to get the picture. You'd fill it out from there, but I think that would have been a pretty good start. But I thought, you know, this is Jacoji. I need to be serious. So let's... <laughs> Let's forget about that plan. (laughs) And uh, actually, the next image that crossed my mind is the one that directed the talk that I'm going to present this afternoon. And that's why I told Mike I would talk about the title. That would be sufficient, Uh, Song of the Jewel or Precious Mirror Samadhi. Because when I hear the term, Now, in the year 2019, a precious mirror. I mean, being having enough of a layman's interest in uh, in astronomy and physics, the first thing I think of is this crazy new telescope that's going to be launched in a couple of years, the James C. Webb. I don't know how many of you have heard about it, but uh, it's the replacement to the Hubble. And of course, all these telescopes work with mirrors. And the bigger the mirror, the more intricate the mirror, the more of the cosmos we can see. And from seeing, maybe understand a little better. And uh, I'm going to come back and talk about the uh, the James Webb Telescope in a little more detail because I think in doing so uh, we can connect it to our practice actually. 
in some interesting ways. Because one thing that I knew I had to do, if I'm gonna talk about the Jewel Mirror Samadhi, then uh, it's, it's really based on metaphor because metaphor is mirroring. I mean, if we say something is, is something else, if we're saying in, in some sense, it, it mirrors that, you know. And the sense in which that mirroring effect takes place could be all over the board, but there is essentially a mirroring effect. So that's why the more I, I delved into the scientific thing, I don't want to oversell this. I'm not selling science here. It's not science. It's just a helpful metaphor. That's all. And I think on that basis, there's a lot of room for dialogue between science and religion spirituality. So it's in that vein, rather than trying to make any contributions to physics, just want to be clear about that. So you don't get a bunch of complaints from the folks up the street at Stanford. What the hell are you trying to do there? Yeah, I'm not trying to do anything except make some connections that I think are there to be made and, uh, and by making them can maybe uh, deepen our understanding, which is really, at the end of the day, I think what Dongshan was doing with all his rich imagery. Yeah. I can joke about the Wonderland, but he obviously didn't think there were wooden men and stone women and all, all these other images, but he thought there was something there we can, you know, Maybe uh, respond, it, the, the piece will respond to our inquiring impulses. Uh, but I wanted to start, uh, of course, I guess we've already started, so I wanted to continue <laughs> by uh, uh, just reminding you of something that Mike pointed out in his opening comments last night, that Denko means transmission of light. So it's also highly appropriate that we uh, study something like the precious mirror samadhi at Denkoi, because a mirror really doesn't work if you don't have light. Light's the thing that kind of puts it all in motion. So we need to talk a little bit about light before we can start talking about mirrors. And. Uh, and the transmission piece is, is just the passage of electromagnetic radiation through a medium. And trans means across, across space and time. So transatlantic, transgenerational, which is this practice, has traveled across space and time. So the transmission of the Dharma has certainly uh, been this passage of, of a certain type of radiation, we could almost say, through the medium of this you know, wonderful teacher-student relationship that's also part of the precious mirror samadhi from the standpoint of Zen practice how it gets intimately transmitted. But just to understand 
the term that's used, transmission, what it's based in, might help us to, to see the transmission that we're familiar with in Zen practice with a, with a little more clarity and also have a deeper appreciation for it. Because it is pretty astonishing the way it's been transmitted over all these generations and across the globe. So to bring mirror into this mix, you know, mirror, if you put light, direct light to a mirror, it will either reflect it, it can also refract it, and we're going to look at that because that's an important uh, aspect of what can happen too. Refraction is when it bends the light due to a lens effect. You know, the famous example we're all familiar with is if you poke a stick in, in, in the water, we would do that as kids at the swimming pool. We'd have something we'd put in, and all of a sudden you just bent it. Right? We'd go, ah, look at that, magical powers. Uh, but from the standpoint of practice, you know, again, how do we reflect our uh, spiritual light, I'll call it, if we refract it, what has the, the, the biggest lensing impact? It's our sense of self, I think. That's kind of the way I see it. It's what really bends it and uh, can create some pretty bizarre effects. You know, another uh, example of refraction that uh, maybe you've experienced many years ago is uh, at the fun house with the mirrors that make you look short and fat. And, yeah, you, can, you can make not only yourself but the whole world look in all these odd ways that are simply the result of that lensing effect. You're not reflecting, you're refracting and the power behind that refraction is the sense of self. That's why, you know, in the Mahayana tradition, so much emphasis is placed on no self for anything. No self-nature. That's refracting. That's not reality. That's not the clarity that we're looking for. And another important thing about light and its reflective qualities is that that's the only way we see light. We don't experience pure light. You couldn't see it. Think about it. Every time you see light, you look outside and it's, it's an object that's reflecting light. If there were no objects, we couldn't, couldn't see anything. And of course, if there's no light, we can't see anything. I experienced that many, many years ago at Mammoth Cave. When, of course, when you're in a place like that, they like to have fun with their audience and turn the lights off so you can experience total, complete darkness. And it's jolting. I mean, I immediately reached out and grabbed the guy next to me, who I knew. <laughs> But it's so disorienting. But this basic interdependence between light and objects 
there's no world without it. We need them both. Sounds a lot like the relative and the absolute, right? Form and emptiness. You can't experience one without the other. No light, no objects. No objects, no light. They don't exist on their own. So that's the precious mirror and how it handles light. Now samadhi adds another interesting element. When we look at this through the aspect of optics and physics, absorption of light, you know, we've learned a lot about that in the 20th and now into the 21st century, about how when a photon strikes an object, you know, if, it, if, if, uh, if it's absorbed, the absorption causes an electron, and this would all happen on the surface, but an electron would uh, jump up into a higher energy state. And from there, you know, something will at some point happen. The law of conservation of energy, it's uh, the photon has, has energized that piece, just like practice energizes us here. We're practicing absorption, and I think that's what the power of Sashina is, is that we actually, rather than reacting, reflecting back things through silence, through stillness, and we can just be absorbed and be present. And a lot of energy gets built up. So the importance of practice is what happens with that energy. I mean, it's wonderful while it's taking place, but it's, it's still there. It needs to manifest. So with, with physical objects, of course, when, uh, if, a fo if, uh, if when the uh, electron drops to a lower energy level again, another photon is, is, uh, is expelled. It gives that out as the balancing of energy again. And I think much the same sort of thing happens with us. This is the relationship. Uh, and it's appropriate for us this week because we're, as Mike also said last night, we're going to have two ordination ceremonies that we're all part of. You know, there's a, uh, a Jukai ceremony tomorrow and a priest uh, ordination ceremony on Sunday where the vows are about this uh, energy that's going to be taken forward is a result of the absorption that these uh, uh, Sangha members have, have experienced through their dedicated practice. And with the support of Sangha, you can't be ordained without being a member of a Sangha. With the support of Sangha and through their own contributions to Sangha, we look forward to sending them forth on their paths and continuing to support them as they shine their light out in the world. 
And quite often, it's been my experience that post-ordination, that light does get a little brighter. I don't know why. It's, it's mystical stuff, you know. I can't, I can't plot it out in a formula, but it does seem to happen. More often than not. So, the other thing before I, I uh, get get uh, into the uh, the uh, James Webb Telescope uh, that I thought was pretty appropriate to to talk about here is uh, I I looked through Coben's collection of Sashin talks because he has a chapter on light in there. Well, I thought that would be, a, be pretty nice to pull into this, see what he had to say about this matter. And I, I have just a few uh, statements of his from that chapter I'd like to share with you. He says, we speak of Denko, transmission of light. What kind of light? It is something which shines, some, sometimes externally, sometimes internally. You sense it's in you and in all things outside of you. It's burning and shedding light, this energy that's being radiated, burning and shedding. Each person carries a life which exchanges energy in some kind of community importance of Sangha. Of course, if the sun didn't exist, none of us could live. So in that sense, the sun is constantly related to you. So now even Coben's going into astronomy and he, he goes a little bit further with it. In the same way, the movement of this, of this galaxy, stars and planets, is keeping this earth together. This is light. All its power. It's beyond my understanding, he says, but I suspect the whole thing is actually one fantastic dynamic embedded in us before we knew it, in our heart. And then he references uh, the, uh, the Hindu teachings before the, before the Buddha came along. He says, according to the Upanishads, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in our heart, according to the Upanishads, is Atman. And in the center of Atman are a billion Atmans. Kind of like the host within the host, right? The Atmans within the Atman. And in there is a light. Atman shines. So we notice each other, just like we can notice objects when the light shines on them. And this Atman is a small version of this big universe, which is called Brahman. And this Brahman and Atman are actually identical in their essence, kind of like they mirror each other. And that's how the Upanishads talk about Atman. And of course, the Buddha came along with his teaching of Anatman, which we just referenced. You know, no self, 
because self diffracts light. That becomes a problem. So just another couple of quick sidebars here I wanted to, to, to also include. Uh, at this point, talking about light, absorption, reflection, uh, relative, absolute, I thought I, I should include at least a couple of haiku by Basho, because this is really the power of haiku, is the way it really nails in such an intimate way this delightful interplay. Such fragrance from where? Which tree? And the next one actually refers to uh, one of our uh, most important Zen ancestors. Husking rice, a child squints up to view the moon. And lastly, how I long to see among dawn flowers the face of God. This rich interplay, the light that reflects off the face of flowers and directs us back to the absolute. Of course, these are visual, although uh, the nice thing about Basso's uh, haiku is that uh, the first one I shared with you is based on sense of smell, such fragrance. And the last one could be changed to an uh, audio version, which might be more appropriate to our practice here at Jokoji. Uh, we might exceed the, uh, the number of syllables we're allowed here, but uh, how I long to hear among morning songbirds, the face of God. Maybe you've had that experience here. And then there are some clearly uh, a lot of examples of, of this uh, teaching about light from various religious traditions. The two I wanted to call our attention to, because they're, they're interesting, the merging of them. Uh, one of them from, uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, with Jesus teaching that you are the light of the world. That's pretty Buddhist. Of course, we all know Jesus was, was a Buddhist anyway. <laughs> But then, of course, the, the Buddha's last teaching to his disciples was that be a light unto yourself. So you merge those two together. And I don't know if you need anything else. You are the light of the world and be a light unto yourself. I think you could probably live a pretty rich life following those two statements by two of our great teachers. So, I promised we'd uh, circle back to the James Webb Space Telescope, which, uh, which is, if, if 
they could stay on schedule, which isn't likely. Although it has been built, so it could happen. But it, it's scheduled for uh, the end of March 2021. So almost a year and a half away. And it's going to be able to really look back to the, almost to the origins of the universe. Uh, it's going to be able to find the first galaxies that, that formed in the early universe. The reason it's going to be so powerful, I mean, it is going to be much uh, higher above Earth than the Hubble was. So that will help. Uh, and, and the components of the mirror, the mirror is going to be almost three times larger. And actually, it's not just a single mirror. And this is what I really loved. It's 18 separate mirrors, like Sangha members. Right? And each one is hexagonal. So this, this is the fine tuning of the engineering on this thing to be able to construct something so intricate that it can uh, and it will have the power of, of capturing light much lower, it, it, or actually a, a broader wavelength. So uh, the current Hubble is mostly visible light. I think maybe it gets just into the, the infrared, but this thing's going to drop well into the infrared. And the reason why that's so important to capture the most distant galaxies is because of the expanding universe. The further things are out, there's this redshift quality in, in the light that they're giving off because they're moving away from us, stretches the light waves. It's the Doppler effect. You know, if the train goes past you, it's going down the track, all of a sudden the tone drops. And conversely, if it's coming towards you, the waves are, are getting much shorter. And, increases. So these furthest galaxies are moving at a pretty good clip relative to us. So the only way you can detect them is well into the infrared. And this, this baby is going to be able to capture that. So that's why it's going to uh, have that kind of power to do that. But the kind of conditions that are required are the temperature has to be kept below minus 370 degrees Fahrenheit. So no small task. The reason being, if, if it was higher than that, it would start to, it would interfere with the, the light that it's trying to, to measure. It's got to be totally frigid. But the the kind of conditions that get created to make these 18 uh, mirrors function together to, to really be able to capture these images, to detect the truth of, of the universe. Kind of like the conditions that, uh, that Doug tries to keep us in line on. He doesn't chill us out to 370 below, but the, 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 kinds of, the kind of environment that exists has a big impact on us too. 
with however many mirrors we have here. And the fact that we practice together under certain conditions and su support each other to support this overall effort that's taking place here. And we can see some pretty profound things too. So we're all kind of responsible for our own mirror, but because of interdependence, we have a lot of help and support in that too. So it's that two-way street that's behind anything as, as, uh, as expansive as this amazing telescope. Uh, Yeah, well, I think uh, just one last thing that I thought I should uh, talk about uh, relative to, to this mirror is uh, just a, a real quick rundown on some of the key uh, uses of mirror imagery throughout Zen, at least up to Dogen. And this will just take a, a couple of minutes, I think, because one of them was actually, well, not quite covered, but pointed to by, uh, by Coben and his comments that I shared with you. And that's, of course, uh, dealing with the diamond net of Indra, which also dates back to Vedic origins, uh, about, a, a th about the year 1000 BCE. So that would ultimately get uh, uh, taken, taken over by Mahayana Buddhism in the Flower Ornament Sutra, which dates to about the third century common era with their imagery of the diamond net of Indra. And for those of you that aren't familiar with that, it's kind of a, a metaphorical depiction of reality where there's this, this net and a diamond is placed in each of the apertures so that uh, everything is just a reflection of everything else. It's one of those images to depict the truth of interdependence. So that sutra was really pretty impactful within Zen. It would have been impactful for, uh, for Dongshan. It was impactful. And, uh, and a few centuries after the writing of the Flower Ornament Sutra, around the 6th to the 8th centuries, uh, uh, there was a school called the Huayen, which really flourished. And that was their, that was their sutra, was the flower ornament. And they, they were uh, really utilizing that imagery at the heart of their uh, teachings about the nature of reality. And like I said, that had a big impact on, on Zen. Uh, within that time period when the Huayen uh, was flourishing, uh, in the Zen world, our sixth ancestor, Hui Neng, appears on the scene. His dates are, are given as being 638 to 713. And of course, uh, maybe the, the most famous mirror imagery in Zen comes from, 
from uh, his famous poem, uh, the poetry slam from, from uh, 7th century China. And just to refresh everybody's memory, the, the first poem to get entered in this contest was, uh, I'll butcher the name, Shen, Shen Xiu's, uh, he was the head monk. And his poem uh, expressed it this way. This body is the Bodhi tree. The mind is like a bright mirror stand. At all times, we must strive to polish it and must not let dust collect. So even though Hui Neng was illiterate, somebody came back to the kitchen where he was husking rice, gazing at the moon, and, uh, and related the poem to him. He said, oh, that's, that's not it. He said, dictated his poem uh, covering the same material, just taking a, a, a much different stand, literally. <laughs> he said, he, he expressed it this way. Bodhi originally has no tree. The mind also has no stand. Fundamentally, there is not a single thing. Where could dust arise? So that's, and of course, Hui Neng is just, uh, uh, I think, five Dharma generations before Dong Shan. So Dong Shan, in his time, you know, that, that was uh, a well-known story, teaching story in Zen. And then uh, I mentioned I'd, I'd take it for a little further ahead to Dogen. Dogen actually has uh, one of his fascicles in Shobogenzo is Kokyo, mirror. That's mirror in, in uh, Japanese. And you may have heard about this koan with Matsu and his teacher Nangaku, where Nangaku uh, sees uh, Matsu Really, he's, because Matsu is already uh, a very accomplished Zen master, and he's always doing Zazen. And Don Gaku uh, says, you know, why, why, what are you doing? What are you doing? He says, oh, creating a, uh, a Buddha. And Don Gaku goes off to the side and starts polishing a tile. And Matsu says, well, what are you doing? Creating a Buddha, creating a mirror. It's a mirror, I'm making a mirror. Uh, and Matsu says, well, you, you can't create a mirror like that. And of course, the, the, the neat thing here is, you know, that's all traditionally, that's taken as a sign that, you know, we don't, we don't practice Zazen because we are Buddha. Uh, we don't practice Zazen to, uh, to uh, become Buddha. We, we already are. And, but Dogen loved turning those things around. Actually, he said, well, Nangaku was pointing to the truth of the mirror, that the mirror is everywhere. So polishing the tile, 
he was turning it into a mirror. <laughs> all these people had it wrong all those years. <laughs> kind of like his painted rice cakes fascicle. Yeah, that painted rice cakes don't satisfy hunger, and you read uh, Dogen, and he says, no, actually they do. <laughs> he loved to turn things around like that. So this, this sense of, uh, of the mirror. And then one last thing, and then I'll throw it open for, for comments and questions and dialogue. Uh, one of the texts I looked at uh, besides Tigan's Just This Is It, and I see you've got plenty of copies up in your little bookstore, so that's been uh, advertised and, and deservedly so. Uh, but there's another book that uh, an Australian by the name of Ross Bolliter wrote a few years ago on the five ranks. But he's got a lengthy chapter in there, uh, and the title of it is, uh, is The Five Ranks. But there's a chapter in there on the precious mirror samadhi, because it's the other famous teaching that, that Dongshan is known for. And I, I copied down uh, a, a paragraph of his from that chapter of the book, because I thought it would kind of pull things together for us here, hopefully. Uh, he says, the precious mirror is a metaphor for our intimacy with the cosmos and its intimacy with us. At the same time, the mirror motif conveys distinction, difference, and uniqueness. A person is not his or her reflection. That realization is contained in the precious mirror samadhi. I am not it. There is, within the mirror, there is that distinction. So again, back to the James Webb, it's going to be detecting you know, all these various galaxies. But it allows us also to, to see it in its, in its combined nature. But we can only see that by seeing the individuals. So part of the deal is uniqueness, distinction. So this precious mirror that simultaneously reflects both mutual inclusiveness and difference. The precious mirror used here as an image evocative of our essential nature. That's who we are. We contain both of those. To deny either one misses it. And samadhi is that state of absorption where the meditator unites with the object of meditation, making it expressive of Buddha's primordial awakening. Now I see that all beings are tathagata, are just this person. Just this is it. This intimacy between cosmos and person that Buddha expressed upon awakening is what Dongshan calls the Dharma of just this. So we can trace this rich teaching all the way back to the original awakening of, of Shakyamuni Buddha. We can trace it easily back to uh, 
Toshito's uh, Sandokai. It was just a few generations, three generations, I think, before Dongshan. So this teaching is at the heart of the whole blood vein that uh, the two upcoming ordainees are going to receive. The teaching, that's, that's the blood, is that essence, the essence of all of us, is in there. So I, I'm glad we have the chance to spend this week looking at this rich poem, and I hope you'll continue to do just that. There's a lot of material out there now that, uh, that helps to facilitate that. So don't let it end with uh, Sunday morning. Please continue it. And it'll help shine a light on every other teaching you look at. That's the beauty of it. By studying this, you're studying Dogen, you're studying Suzuki Roshi, you're studying Colvin, you're studying everybody. So, I'm done. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. Hogan. You mentioned this telescope and uh, the way it's been designed. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was designed into it was its ability to um, reliably detect very long wavelengths of light, deep into the red or infrared, perhaps yeah. even to the radio waves. One of the great advantages of that, um, I can illustrate perhaps with um, uh, our own memory of uh, if you've ever been outdoors as the uh, near the end of the day when the sun gets very low in the sky and the um, the light coming from the sun for the reasons of what it's going through shifts to the red you know when things get kind of reddish near sunset you might have noticed that things appear much more clear there's a there's a crystal clarity to looking in the distance often with that red light and uh, that's a real physical consequence. It's not an illusion. It's a consequence of the fact that shorter wavelengths of light, bluer light, scatter more strongly mm. than the longer wavelengths of light. So this telescope has been designed with the idea that um, you get this super distant light source, mm -hmm. super distant thing you're trying to look at, if you are able to look in the very long wavelengths, those long wavelengths will arrive having been scattered less. There'll be more true information about what the source looked like hmm. rather than you know, the, the shorter wavelengths, the bluer light gets bounced around, interacts with yeah. more things on okay. its way. Yeah. So I, I wanted to add that as something to think you about. Did. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks.
Oh, Andy. Just thinking back on the poetry slam. <laughs> Ancient poetry slam. And I never quite thought of it this way before, but when I heard it this time, I heard that I saw I, I saw um, the first version, and I could never pronounce his name either, by the head monk, <laughs> is illustrating our practice from a relative perspective. And uh, Swaining, yeah, correct? Yeah. His yes. perspective is the absolute perspective. Mm -hmm. And Sandokai and his song of Jewel Mir Samadhi, they're, they're telling us, like, hey, don't favor one or the other. They're both, you get caught in that, you're trapped. Yeah. And so it struck me the first time that, yeah, okay, Huaining was maybe more advanced because it's harder to see. It's harder to recognize in a way because of our condition, conditionality and conditioned mind. But it's not more true necessarily yeah than the other one yeah i thanks for making that point because i, I think you're you're uh, right about that that actually the fifth monk's teaching was a pretty solid teaching <laughs> he did he did receive transmission he had a a, a line uh, that that continued on past him so the problem with the hui neng thing is it just became so polemical i mean the platform sutra is just this that's where the sudden and uh, gradual and split t took off that was just perfect got crazy but yeah they're both you know they're both wonderful poems and to, to elevate one against the other one so yeah that, thanks for making that point that's important you don't have to I have no science background, so this isn't going to be some intellectual physics um, observation. But something I couldn't help but notice is when you were talking about the geometry of the Webb telescope with the um, 18 separate hexagonal mirrors that comes out to the number 108, which hmm. just <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> what happens when you have nothing here and it's all on this side, I guess. You know, you have to like search and get what you can get. So numbers. Well. We, Give this to the next person. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. That's fascinating. Wow. Actually, this is a good example of the thought that went across my mind, if I understand the web tel telescope correctly, those 18 mirrors actually sequentially expand the light. They, okay. they, each of them expands and builds on the next. And I think that's what happens here in the Sangha. Mm. And it happens because some of us are thinking with our right brain, some with our <laughs> left brain. Yeah. We each have something to contribute, and, and in, it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, thanks, Jim.
Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.